This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, we remember those that have left us this year. And medical reform is going global. Also, FAA issues important new FBO pricing guidance. And we find out about a new Cessna and two new carbon cubs. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. All right, David, uh, last show of the year. So just so folks prepare, I'm, we're going to say it up front. This is going to be the last show of the year. All right. So in two weeks, don't look for us, but then look for us again in January. Right. And we, we hope everyone has a good holiday. Yeah, good holidays. And uh, because those are coming up, I don't know, have you done all your shopping yet? I've done a little shopping, but I really want to do a little bit more, especially for my pilot friends. Yeah. So a great place to do that is, of course, Sporties. Oh, yeah. And so we're going to hear from John Zimmerman this week. Uh, John, if uh, you haven't met him, maybe you have at a show. John's the guru of everything aviation at sporties and he he tries it all out and he's a good guy to boot yeah so we're going to talk about his flying a little bit so um you can get an idea of his expertise and where that comes from and then uh hear kind of his thoughts for what's coming down the pike in terms of gadgets and what sells really well and we even talk about a couple of busts that they've had over the years oh is that right yeah so my goodness i want to find out about that (laughs) I hope um, I don't own any of those. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> All right. So we, we thought we would start with the downer news, uh, the downer sort of segment, the Oscar look back of the year. Um, David, this is your idea, and I think it's a good one. You've written many of these, actually, but just sort of remember those who have left us this year. Right. Um, some that you've probably heard of, some maybe you haven't. So the big one, actually, in the very beginning of the year, if you think back almost a, a full 12 months, Gene Cernan. Yeah, former astronaut Gene Cernan Mm -hmm. uh, passed away on January 16th. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, of course, AOPA member, um, big-time GA pilot, and last man to walk on the moon. That's significant. Yeah. And then um, Doris Lognes, one of the 100 most influential women in aviation and aerospace, she passed away January 30th. Yeah, Hall of Fame pilot there. Also, uh, Luigi Pascal, um, most folks probably don't know that name, but very important in aviation now. He was the founder of Technum. Yeah, so, an Italian designer. Yep, they're on the rise, so he's he has a lot of influence now. 
And uh, Bill Brennan, a Wisconsin air racing legend, and, uh, and Bill raced over in Reno hmm. as well. Okay. Craig Dotlow was an AOPA state advocacy rep. Um, Craig left us uh, March 30th and did a lot of important work over the past couple of decades for AOPA and AOPA members, especially in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. James C. Ray was an aviation philanthropist. He was a World War II veteran and AOPA President's Council member, and he passed away April 1st. I didn't meet him, but I thought you might have run into him. Yeah, I think I might have met him at an event once. And um, the thing is, folks may not—he was he was very— Behind the scenes. He was yeah. very reserved about his giving um, in the sense that he didn't put his name all over the buildings he gave to. But if you've been to Sun and Fun— You've seen their incredible high school. Uh-huh. Uh, that's just one of the things that James Ray made James awesome. Ray made possible. Next is a, a, a big guy in his local community, and also the um, the really old airplanes, World War One collector airplanes, is um, Javier Arango. He uh, he passed away uh, late April of earlier this year. Yeah, and then uh, we all heard a little bit about um, icons. John Carcow, he was an icon designer and a test pilot. He also was a scaled composites engineer. He passed away May 8th. Yeah, very talented designer. Um, you knew uh, Clyde Shelton. He was a big name where you were. You come from. Yeah, Clyde Shelton, he was a sought-after pilot examiner uh, in the southeast in Alabama and Texas, uh, Alabama and Tennessee, <laughs> right in that northeast corner there. Um, and uh, he administered 10,380 check rides. Wow. Clyde Shelton. Wow. June 10th. Um, also, former U.S. Representative Vernon Ehlers, he co-founded the GA Caucus, so a name that uh, a lot of folks, if you weren't obviously from his district, you may not have heard of, but has a big influential part in GA, uh, very active pilot. James W. Brown Jr., heart cell propeller, uh, and he passed away November 20th. Now, um, I believe that his sons actually are running the company now, Ian. I know yeah. that you took a site visit over there, uh, I think, over the summer. Yep, that's right. Um, yeah, Joe Brown, his son, uh, and his brother run the company, and uh, they've actually their dad, James, did ex- extremely well with it, purchased it a number of years ago, and Joe and his brother continue to run it really well. And um, really, really great story. So it's a family-run business mm-hmm. now, and they've had a lot of great success uh, with a lot of their newer programs, with their propellers uh, programs and the composite props, and good to see them do well. Yeah, yeah, cool stuff. All right, so um, let's move on. We want to talk a little bit about medical reform. Of course, we've talked about it many times here um, and how it relates to U.S. pilots. And you know, the success uh, continues there. We see numbers. We, we have a ticker at AOPA, and so we get reminded <laughs> daily of how many folks have uh, taken that uh, basic med path, and it's really fantastic. But what we want to talk about today is how it's going global. It is. I think because of some of our successes here in, in the USA, uh, that other aviation uh, entities worldwide are taking a harder look at it. And really what we want to do is have the other countries accept our basic med program for flights overseas, basically. Yeah. Yep. And so the latest country to adopt a basic med type qualification is Australia. Right. I'm glad, yeah. to, glad to see that down under. Yeah. And there's also some discussions uh, with the folks in Canada and Mexico, mm-hmm. for sure, yep. among other countries. And I know the Bahamas very early that's on right. said that's that right. they would accept basic med uh, pilots who fly over. So you can see it takes a little while for these things to catch on sometimes, but uh, it's really catching on big, and that's that's fantastic. It is, and we're headed towards, if we haven't passed already, 25,000 yeah. basic med uh, folks, and that's really Just encouraging to see, yeah. In- including, I might add, I'm going to write a little story about this later, including yeah. Santa Claus. 
Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Santa Claus is basic med? Santa Claus uh, is basic <laughs> med now. And uh, you'll have to stay tuned and check our website out to find out a little bit more about Santa Claus and basic med. But he participated in last week's Holly Run. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some blood pressure issues there with Santa Claus. I don't know. Um, There's a lot of pressure on getting those toys out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So FBO pricing. We haven't talked about this in a few weeks. You remember this issue. Basically, AOP is trying to attack these egregious pricing that we find mostly at monopoly FBOs, big chain FBOs. A couple of outliers there otherwise, but that's the biggest issue. And we've been waiting for this for the FAA. You know, I I don't know if you know, David, but the way this works is that the airport essentially creates agreements with their leaseholders, right? And they're called the sponsor. Yeah, the airport, yeah. the airport, the city, county, whatever. Right. Uh, that's the sponsor. And they have these agreements. And for a long time, of course, it's like city attorneys and people mm-hmm. who aren't necessarily aviation focused who right. execute these agreements. And so there's been lots of confusion from the sponsors about what their obligations are. So FAA has come out with this document and clears it up, and it's fantastic. There's a lot of great suggestions on there, and uh, and don't forget, AOPA was behind a lot of this and met, you know, with the FAA and and actually had had F- FBO folks up here at Frederick to yeah. meet with us and uh, hammer it out and talk about some best practices. And that's really what this uh, new document is all about: some mm-hmm. best practices and being uh, open and transparent yes. about that. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. They go through some of the things that a sponsor is obligated to do, including to uh, verify and track and make transparent the pricing, like you just mentioned. Uh And clarify the scope and detail of the right to do self-service operations. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, which is which is interesting. But now we're also talking about uh, ramp areas and keeping uh, the airports open. As um, as AOPA President Mark Baker says, you should be able to fly an airplane to an airport and uh, park it at a ramp and then get in a car and go somewhere. And that's what opens up the country. Yeah, yeah so that's right. So we're talking a little bit more about exclusive control over ramp areas. Yeah. So being able to have the option, because there are some airports where the leaseholder, so the FBO in this case, has exclusive rights over the entire ramp of the airport, making it impossible for a pilot to fly in and not pay a fee, right. basically. And the, and the FAA said that was not their intent. Yeah. So they intended to have the, the ramps open. Yes. And so you weren't required to go to that particular FBO. Yep, yep. So FAA is also saying that um, to attack pricing, things should be publicly disclosed, the rates and charges for airport access. Some other things in the request for proposals, this is a big one, I think, require fuel pricing policies. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And uh, require adjustments based on uh, profit limits and local law and ordinances. And we're still keeping an eye on a couple of the uh, uh, larger FBOs that have conglomerated in, in a couple of cities. There's really some some hot spots still. So, yeah, I think there's going to be lots more to come on this FBO issue. And I think we're going to see airport sponsors sort of find these FAQs as time goes on and start to adopt practices and, and bring some of these policies into the RFP process. Yeah, and I think it'll, it'll be great for pilots. They'll, they'll know a little bit more about what they get into ahead of time. They can do their homework before they go somewhere, yeah. and they'll be assured of being able to fly to a place and land and go to the ramp and get fuel and know what it's all going to cost. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about some new airplanes. Oh, yeah, let's complete, do. Complete opposite <laughs> ends of the spectrum here. We got uh, three in total. The ultra ultra light end, and then the sort of big fat high end. So uh, why don't we, let's start with the big fat high end. Well, Cessna introduced the Sky Courier twin turboprop in, and this is a really neat airplane. It's based basically 
on their caravan. Okay. It's a bigger and better caravan. They said it's a clean sheet design. It's called the Sky Courier 408. Of course, it's a high wing, uh, like a lot of Cessnas are. Twin engine. And this uh, this utility turboprop is designed on the interior end to get uh, containers in it that, that folks like FedEx would use. Mm, so mm-hmm. it's a, a quick in, quick out, quick turnaround aircraft. Yeah. But not just for cargo. It also could be reconfigured for, I think, 19 passengers. Yeah. So it looks a fair amount like the Twin Otter, um, if you're familiar with that, uh, or like you said, like a big fat caravan. Uh-huh. Interestingly, a couple of interesting things I think that have that are on this. They're do, they're going with the Pratt and Whitney engines. Also, the fact that it's a Cessna and not uh-huh. uh, Beechcraft, which I think is interesting because that is. You know, oh, they've good got point. the King Airs, the twin turboprops right. already. Because Textron has both companies. Both. Right. Um, but and so they clearly want to step people from the caravan gotcha. to the Sky Courier. Yeah, yeah, that makes uh, sense. Like FedEx. Who did order a hundred to start off? They did. They, they, yeah. I think they paid for fifty already, and they yeah. have fifty more coming. Yeah. Now the um, the sidestep uh, real quickly. That caravan came in pretty handy during this past year's hurricanes. Oh yeah. It got a lot of people out and evacuated a lot of folks from from places in Florida for sure. I saw it myself. Yeah. Yeah, and it can carry a ton. So this one they think should be able to move six thousand pounds of payload. Up to 200 knots between four and 900 miles, and, it do, and then that depends on how heavily it's it's uh, loaded. Yeah, and how far they can go. Yep. So I think we'll see. You know, obviously a lot of these at uh, some of the FedEx feeders, but uh, which you know what? Actually, one thing I just thought about, which is really interesting, is, um, and I don't know how much of an issue it is, but I remember it used to be. People didn't want to fly for those FedEx feeders because all you got was single-engine turbine time. Oh, so it would be real. It's going to be really interesting. So to this see helps what happens. a pilot out as it's yeah. moving up the uh, moving up. Yeah, it's going to be interesting right. to see what happens as they get these twin engines, and all of a sudden that job becomes a lot more well, a lot better for your career and your logbooks. So, yeah, yeah, it huh. makes more sense. Now this uh, this aircraft, I did call uh, Cessna and asked how much the aircraft would sell for. It is sell, it's going to sell for $5.5 million and it's planned for the beginning of 2020. Yeah, which is fascinating because it came out of nowhere. So, really cool. Um, all right, the other end of the spectrum is Cub Crafters. And they are not selling for $5.5 no. million. Dollars. <laughs> no. no. Um, constantly tweaking with that classic Cub design and doing a great job at it. They've got two new versions, the EX3 and the FX3. Uh-huh. These are carbon cubs, and have you flown one of the carbon cubs, Ian? I haven't yet. I have. I got my oh, seaplane rating in one oh, out awesome. at Kenmore, yeah. and it was awesome. Yeah. Super cub. But uh, you and I were talking about this right before the show, and that the new 186-horsepower CC363i fuel-injected four-cylinder from Superior Air Parts is uh is the base of this aircraft plus a lot of a lot of performance tweaks mm-hmm. and uh, airframe tweaks but this is kind of neat um, the extra power is gonna of course allow for increased utility mm-hmm. you know higher payloads and uh, a little bit faster cruise 132 miles an hour on the cruise and a 765 mile range that's huge which you wouldn't think for this type of airplane you would need that kind of range but if you think about flying in the backcountry it's you like might it's a long time between right. in and fuel. out yeah. right right yep. now, or if you're going to land somewhere and then go camping yep. or bring people in or go fishing you know with one other person and, and go back out you want to have enough fuel to do both yeah absolutely and have enough range so there, the difference between the two, the EX3 is the full-on experimental amateur-built version, and the FX3 is this really interesting thing that's happening in the experimental market, which is that the factory build assist, which basically means they, <laughs> the company practically builds the airplane, 
um, with, with you. Yeah, and, and it's like you come in for a couple weeks, you help out, you know, you work some of the CNC machines. They whatever. make sure you don't mess it up. Yeah, basically. And uh, two weeks later, you got an airplane. That's so, pretty cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. And that way you could um, tweak it a little bit. And, you know, the thing about these carbon cups is that you can order them in a variety of different, you know, configurations. You can have, you know, you can actually get floats on it like we talked a little while ago. Big big country tires, that kind of things. Different kind of panels. Pretty much whatever you want. Yeah. And actually, I say two weeks. That's sort of that was the industry standard. Now with carbon, a week. That's amazing. I can't <laughs> you take believe a week's it. vacation and at the end of it have an airplane. Um, right. And so now let's talk a little bit about pricing now. Yes. Uh, so the EX3, that's the one that you're going to build yourself in yep. your in your hangar, your your garage. That's priced at about 180,000 bucks, depending yeah. on the options you on choose. On what you want to do with it. Yep. And so the full on uh, FX, the seven days factory help version is about two hundred and forty nine thousand nine hundred dollars. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. And they'll, you know what? Sounds like a lot of money. They'll sell a ton of them. I think uh, people, that's pretty good value for a backcountry airplane. And, yeah. And, and depending on what you want to do with the utility, FC plane for two hundred fifty grand is pretty yeah. good. I <laughs> mean, the people who have the money, it's like you know, to only have to take a few days off and have right. an airplane that then you can reconfigure for its life however you want, and you can do the maintenance and everything else. That's really cool. It is, and they're really interesting airplanes. I actually want to get my tailwheel endorsement this year. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that I can learn a little bit more about about the uh, the carbon cubs in the process. Uh, one thing we should uh, that's I think kind of interesting, and this is again a, a Cubcrafter signature, is that they announced it and they're already delivering. There is no like they're pretty fast. It'll happen five years from now or anything else. It's like they like to say we did this, and oh by the way, you can get one too if you want. Yeah, so. and, and I know that uh, Dave Hirschman, mm-hmm. our uh, editor at large, yeah. is, is uh, really impressed with the Carbon Cub line, and I know that uh, that he speaks highly of them. So yep. if he says it's good, I believe him. Yep. All right, so last thing we're going to talk about, and I, this is like you know what I want for Christmas time. Uh, this is just a fascinating technology <laughs> that I can't wait to actually happen, and I do think it will. Have you? You said you're not instrument rated. We've I'm an about instrument this. student. Student. Have you gotten a clearance yet at an airport without a control tower? Um, I did that once in yeah. Florida with uh, with a buddy of mine. Okay, that was tricky to do. You had it to is. call up on the telephone. It was a big hassle, and if I recall, we were wait we we're we're waiting in the aircraft, yes, in the run-up area, yes, on the telephone, yes. which is like goofy. And this is before Bluetooth. Yeah, yes, exactly. And so I know people are like Bluetooth cell phone. Why would I need my cell phone on Bluetooth? That's why. I was trying to figure out why I would need that yes. too, and I had no idea. Yeah, because I'm in the market for a new headset, but we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but. So that's that's exactly right. It is it is a cumbersome, and it's like I remember learning it, and I was like, wait a second, I have to call on the phone. Uh-huh. They're gonna read me this clearance. I have to like prepare myself, and then I have to say, okay, now I'm ready to go, and then they're going to give me this clearance, and then they're going to say, well, but but if you're not off by a certain time, then the clearance it's is void, voided, and it's right. like, oh, it's so complicated. Which means you cannot go. Yeah. So obviously with technology these days, there's a better way to do it. And MITRE, which is a – it's essentially a think tank for mm-hmm. um, transportation issues, among right. other things. MITRE has been developing a text-based clearance system, which sounds simple and awesome, and I just want to use it now. The basic idea is you can request a clearance with your phone. It'll text it to you. So here it is, all ready to go, no reading back clearances or you know fixes or anything else. And then digitally again, you negotiate the release, and you know you put in, I'm going to leave from this runway at this time. It comes back, and it's like, boom, you're released, off you go. Never talk to anybody. And the app has got some color-coded uh, keys on it that actually helps you out. Yeah, so... Super, super nice cool stuff. stuff. Yeah, so AOPA has uh, obviously 
encourage the FAA to test it as promptly as they can, and I think they will. Um, you know, the datacom is becoming a big deal in the commercial world, and uh, eventually will come down to us, and this is the way to do it. And you can imagine a time, you know, think about like with uh, with connected panels, where literally it's like you request the clearance, it sends it to your phone, you push it up, and the flight management to, director, goodbye. and there it goes into the box. Like it. You never have to touch it. Off you go. Well, you can do that with all kinds of other things these days. Yep. Might as well bring aviation all the way into it. Yeah. So right now it's just a concept. Um, obviously, MITRE has worked it, and and it works. The question is, you know, can they actually use it in the system? And and I think they'll they'll be able to. I don't see why not. So they're encouraging the FAA to do further testing and get it ready to roll. Yeah. It's also a great segue to talk about our guest this week. Yeah. Um, and John, the new headset that I want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we talk about headsets, by the way. Oh, good. We talk about headsets. So you'll have to listen. John Zimmerman, head of uh, Sporty's catalog division, which means all that aviation stuff. He decides um, he's in charge of it in terms of producing the catalogs, finding out what they're going to sell, deciding what they shouldn't sell, what they should sell, how much is stuff to stock, all of that. It's like he's the guy. And uh, And one of the things we did talk about was – if you had a magic wand and you wanted to create something yeah. that you wish that somebody would make, what is it? Ooh. So that's gonna be neat. I wanna hear about that. John, well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, tell me a, a little bit. I mean, I think most people have heard of Sporties, but tell me a little bit about Sporties, what it is. Yeah, Sporties is a great story. It sounds almost almost like it's too good to be true, but Sporties literally began in the trunk of Hal Shever's car uh, 66 years ago. Uh, Hal was a flight instructor and um, began selling just a couple of products out of the trunk of his Studebaker. Uh, his first product was a real tone radio that was modified to receive aviation transmissions. And so, you know, it, it, it grew from there to a small store at Lunkin Airport in Cincinnati, Ohio, and then a bigger store out at the Claremont County Airport, where we are based now, just east of Cincinnati, into what we like to call the world's largest pilot shop. But it's really throughout, it's been a flight training organization, too. As I said, Hal was a flight instructor, and that's always sort of been in our DNA. So Hal spent a lot of time in the 60s traveling around, basically inventing the concept of a three-day ground school. We've been involved in flight training as a flight school, uh, as a university program, as a online and VHS tapes. Uh, so the retail side, I think, is who we are and who a lot of pilots know. But the, the second side of it that maybe not as many pilots know is the flight training side that's really been our passion as well. Hmm. Okay. And so now you focus primarily, I know all you guys touch a little bit of everything because a lot of ways that stuff is related, but Specifically, you touch that retail side. So tell me kind of what you do on a day-to-day -day and, and what your background is. Yeah, I've, I've got the best job in aviation because I get to uh, come to work on the airport every day and, and hang around with other pilots and talk about airplanes. And so really my job is new product development and marketing. Um, and those two are not so much divided here at Sporties. We have sort of an integrated team here that works on that because we really are product-driven. We think if we're uh, solving problems for pilots or making flying a little bit easier or safer or more fun, then the, the marketing can come second from that. So I spent a lot of my time working with our team here on developing new products, uh, everything from the concept to actually getting it made and on the shelf. And then 
uh, selling those, letting pilots know about that, whether that's uh, in the catalog we've done for decades or something online or at a trade show. Now, do you focus only on the pilot shop side? Because, I mean, one thing that, I, that I've just learned, I guess, relatively recently is that Sporties has branched out over the years beyond just pilot products. Yeah, we have three other catalogs, uh, one an aviation gift catalog, Wright Brothers collection, uh, and then two completely non-aviation catalogs, Preferred Living and Tool Shop, um, which are, are also the, the catalog model there. I do spend my time on pilot shop on the aviation side. I'm a pilot. Um, I've been flying for over 20 years, so that's really my passion. That's what I love doing. I was a Sporties customer before I worked here, so I've, I've always admired the organization and, and been excited about it, and now I just get to work for it. So Yeah, cool. That's great. Tell me a little bit about your flying. You uh, you fly a bunch of different types of airplanes, which I think a lot of pilots would be jealous about. And and I guess that allows you in many cases to test out new stuff. Yeah, that's one of the best things uh, at Sporties that's really, it's a great benefit working here, but it's really also, I think, what helps make us successful is we are pilots. The people working on these products are pilots. So working at an airport here at the Claremont County Airport with the flight school, we also run the FBO. So you know, we're around lots of different aircraft on a day-to-day -day basis, and I get to fly a lot of those. So I fly everything from a, a Cetabria tail dragger to a Robinson R44 helicopter, uh, Cessnas, Sporties Red Aztec, uh, all the way up to a Pilatus PC-12 turboprop, which is obviously a dream. It's great to get to fly all that stuff. It keeps us involved in all different aspects of aviation. But I, I do think it really, it helps us you know, when we're designing a product at Sporties, it's not sort of created out of thin air. Nine times out of 10, it's created in response to a problem or an idea that came up because one of us was flying somewhere and said, hey, I wonder if there's a better way to do this, or I wonder if we could solve this problem that is always bothering us in the cockpit. So it's it's an awful lot of fun, but it's also, I think, a big part of uh, what makes Sporties Sporties. Hmm. So one of those things um, that you guys helped develop and uh, that I, I think you probably saw as a, as a great opportunity early on in the iPad days is Stratus. Uh, it's sort of become synonymous with Sporties and, and also with your partners with Forflight and Apario. So tell me a little bit about how it came about, where the idea came from and when you realized it would be possible and then how big you thought it could possibly be. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, if you can imagine a time, Ian, there, there was a time in aviation when the phrase ADSB was not really that well known. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you re if you rewind the you know the, the yeah, clock three years ago, or right? So yeah. Years ago, <laughs> yeah, right. We were um, you know, we sort of had this vague idea that ADSB, well, gee, maybe this weather thing could actually be useful. Um, instead of this just a bizarre add-on to the ADSB out mandate. Um, it really grew out of, you know, in the in the early mid two thousands, uh, XM weather came on the scene, right? And that change things for pilots. To me, that's up there in my book with uh, GPS in terms of most transformative technologies for pilots, because mm -hmm. the ability to have data link weather in the cockpit really did change the way we flew, I think. Uh, so you think of the Garmin 396 or the Garmin 496. These were, these were huge products, both personally and professionally for me, and I think for a lot of other pilots. Um, and so we were sitting around, you know, kind of a decade later, 2010, 2011 kind of time frame. And it seemed like maybe there was a chance to extend that weather that, that worked great, but, you know, required a subscription that not everybody loved. Um, and maybe extend that, that weather concept 
to subscription free and also get on the iPad. You know, the iPad we saw early on was going to be a, a big, big deal and not just a, a fad, but again, change the way pilots fly. So this concept that maybe this iPad thing was for real and maybe this ADSB system that was eventually going to be around was going to offer a few benefits, it sort of came together, but certainly couldn't have done it without our partners. I think that's part of the magic of Stratus that uh, you know, Pario designing, building great hardware, ForeFlight designing, supporting great software, all three parties coming together really to make it happen because, you know, the, the box itself has to be good, but so does the software and so does the way those two things come together and so does the way that's supported and everything. So it, it happened, I think, because of the three-way partnership uh, that's been so great. Now that was, as you say, you know, boy, that was like six, seven years ago now. Obviously, the push for things to get cheaper, more accessible. I mean, we've seen lots of non-for-flight, you know, sort of off-the-shelf, even, you know, DIY types of of ADS-B weather products. But um, where where do you think we go from here? I mean, do you think that that there's still buyers out there for this kind of stuff? Do you think it's just repeat buyers? I mean, um, where do you guys go from here? Yeah, I think there is. Uh, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is uh, there's a lot of pilots out there who are not flying with uh, electronic flight bags yet. Hmm. You know, and for, for people like you and me, and we're probably surrounded by mostly people who are doing that or, you know, for flight or Garmin pilot or Wing X people. But that market is still growing. People are still discovering, you know, the value of flying with a tablet. So to a certain extent that drives it. But uh, I think also there's, there's more and more people realizing that, that weather and to a certain extent traffic as well, which you get with these receivers, isn't just, you know, it's not just an IFR pilot thing that if I'm flying 40 hours a year VFR, there's still benefit to having weather. So that's what we've seen lately is maybe it's gone beyond just the early adopters who are, you know, flying 200 hours a year of hard IFR and they, they get it instantly that, boy, if I can have weather on my iPad, that's magic. Um, and we're starting to see more and more people realize that it's kind of a, an essential thing these days. And it's interesting with with the 2020 ADSB mandate coming up, there was some thought, I think, maybe a couple years ago that, well, as, as everybody installs ADSB in the panel, uh, you know, who will really want to buy a portable ADSB product? The answer to that question is a lot of people uh, for a couple of reasons. One being, and I think as you know, not everybody's going to equip with ADSB out. Yeah, right. You know, there's plenty of people flying, you know, off uh, quiet airports uh, in different parts of America, and they're not close to a Class B airspace. They're not close to Class C airspace, so they don't have to equip with ADSB out. And so for them, uh, portable still makes a lot of sense. The other one we've seen, though, recently that I think is interesting is a lot of people who are equipping with ADSB out are doing the ADSB out portion, but they're doing the ADSB in part as a portable. Um, Why do you think that is? It's interesting. I'd love to say we were smart enough to have thought of this originally, <laughs> but uh, you know what we've heard from some people is, well, I want the ability to upgrade that. You know, as new stuff comes out. Huh, interesting. The panel mount part that's got to be certified, obviously TSO'd and everything. So I'll install that. I'll check the box on my 2020 compliance, but. You know, the ADS-B in part, uh, I want to be a little more loose there to, to add a new feature to it if I went down the road. Maybe I got a, a basic ADS-B in now, I want to upgrade to a fancier one later. Maybe a new one comes out with new features. And since it's portable and not certified, it's a lot easier and less expensive to upgrade that than if you have it in the panel permanently. So. Yeah, those are people with a lot more foresight than I would have. I would think, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like I, all in one, it's easy, I don't have to worry about charging and stuff like that. 
Well, things like synthetic vision. I mean, it's like you want to add that sort of capability and new weather products and everything else. You're right. I mean, going through the certified world, it's like I could take months, if not years, compared to you just whatever, download your new uh, software update to your portable and, and off you go. Exactly. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is for flying club members or renters, you know, who don't control the avionics that's in the airplane they fly, yeah. you know, portables still makes a lot of sense. Maybe maybe the flight school puts an ADSB out to to stay legal, quote unquote, but you know, they're not going to invest in the more expensive ADSB in system. So, I, I think it's int- it's interesting. I, I think it's proven at this point that it's not just a, a flash in the pan. There's there's really a market there long term. So yeah, that's cool. So Stratus, I mean that that's obviously been a big success for you guys and, and for Four Flight and Apario. But what's your what's your biggest seller? I mean, what you know, it's like Walmart has bananas. What does Sporties have? <laughs> Uh, well, I guess if you would have asked us, you know, 15 years ago, I would have said paper charts. Um, that's that's no longer the case. But uh, no, what we're seeing right now, Ian, and I, th- I think you at AOPA see the same thing, but flight training has got some renewed uh, energy there. You know, flight schools are busier, airlines are hiring. Uh, and so the training side of the business has really gotten stronger. So as I mentioned, we've always been a training organization in the way that most people outside of the Ohio area know that is through our online courses. And so that's been real strong for us for you know years and years and years. But uh, just lately in the last few years, that's really picked up. Combination of that market getting stronger, more people learning to fly, and also a lot of the investments we've made to, to make our courses and our training products better. Uh, that, that's a huge part of our business and a, and a huge part of the market right now. Hmm. All right. So give me the plug. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned training. You guys have a, a new version of your private training out. Yeah, this is um, we really committed about three years ago to continually upgrading our courses so that we're always uh, staying up to date with what customers expect. And one of the biggest things customers told us was they wanted the ability to use our course anywhere. So on their phone, on their tablet, on their laptop, even had a surprising number of people who said, I got an Apple TV and I want to use your course. So Hmm. um, what we're calling our 2018 courses includes all of that for the same price. You get the online, the iPhone app, the iPad app, the Apple TV app, and it all syncs together so you can jump back and forth. It's got, there's a whole new iOS app that's, that's clean and simple and easier to use. So that's really our, our goal. We're, you know, we're always updating content. We're always adding video, always doing test questions and things like that. But the way it's used is really, really important for pilots. Um, people are, you know, people will study anywhere they have five minutes. Yeah. It could be on, you know, on an airline flight, could be standing in line. Um, at the grocery store. And so that's really kind of been our focus is to allow people to get a little aviation fix, do a little bit of studying really anywhere they are. And so that's what we've really focused on this year. Mm, Cool. Okay. So aside from your own product uh, and the course upgrade, which is nice, I've seen it. What's the coolest thing you've seen come out this year? Oh boy. Uh, We get to see all kinds of interesting stuff. Um, You know, I tell you one, one product area that maybe doesn't seem like the most exciting or technical, um, but I I think maybe we take it for granted is the world of headsets. Um, I mean, headsets are so important because just about every pilot I know flies with one and you use it on every flight, the battle between say Bose and Lightspeed to deliver a better headset, uh, just this year, you know, Lightspeed with their Zulu three coming out, you know, pilots, we're all the winners of that. They, they both of those companies and, and plenty of others like David Clark have invested lots of time and money in it. And, you know, I, I occasionally will pull out one of my backseat headsets that's maybe 15 or 20 years old. And I think we take for granted how far these things have come, how comfortable they are, how quiet they are. They all have Bluetooth, 
And so, you know, maybe that's not dazzling or sizzling, but from an everyday perspective of, you know, what makes flying safer, easier, or more fun, that's right near the top for me. Hmm. So I get the question a lot. You know, it's funny because it's people who have bought Lightspeeder or Bose or even the new uh, high-end David Clarks. It's like they seem to be definitely in a specific camp. You know, it's like they find one they like and they buy like 20 of them or they buy it over and over and over again. What about new folks who call you and they say, I don't know what kind of headset to get. It's it's such a personal decision. How do you help somebody like that? It's a very personal decision. Uh, we always, we call it the Coke and Pepsi problem because that's really what it comes down to. You know, a typical question would be, well, I'm looking at the you know Bose A20 or the Lightspeed Zulu 3, which is which? And the first answer is, there's not a wrong answer. You know, we'll say, well, you're, you're picking between Ferrari and Lamborghini. You know, there's not a bad answer here. So number one, relax a little bit. You're, you're not going to make a mistake. Um, but it really is personal headsets. You know, they're kind of like shoes. It, everybody's different and your ears and your head shape and all that comes into play. So a lot of times it comes down to personal preference. And so we do a lot of things to help people try it on, whether that's in our store at a trade show, like Oshkosh or Sun and Fun, but also, um, you know, we have what we call our flight test guarantee, which is basically buy it and fly with it for 30 days. And if it doesn't work, send it back and we'll exchange it or, or refund it. And I think a lot of other retailers do similar things. And because at the end of the day, the only way to know a headset works for you and your airplane is to put it on your head and go in your airplane and fly with it. Because yeah. uh, there are subtle differences between people and airplanes that make the right one for me the wrong one for you. Hmm, interesting. So since you have access to all different types, are you a mix because you like <laughs> to kind of keep up on what's new or do you, do you have a favorite, a personal favorite? No, no, that you've got me pegged. I, I fly with a mix. Um, I do fly most with the Bose A20 and that Lightspeed Zulu three. Those are, those are hard to beat. And that is kind of the Coke and Pepsi, I think, uh, these days. And uh, we could go back and forth endlessly about which one is better. But I, I like to jump back and forth between those two. Okay, cool. So uh, let's say I've developed a new headset that I think is going to set the world on fire. And I want somebody and it's like, I, I've got this great idea, I got to sell it. So you get these inquiries all the time, every day, probably. Uh, what do you do? Somebody comes to you and they say, I've got the best idea for X. Uh, how do you guys evaluate stuff? And in order do you think there's a, a even a market and whether the thing's any good? And how, how do you go through that process? We really enjoy that. We work with a number of uh, companies that are one person, you know, a, a pilot who has an idea. So we don't shy away from those. Some of our, our best products over the years have been, you know, a pilot with an idea to do it better. So every market's a little different. Um, headsets is, is tough because there's so many great options out there. But we will always have that conversation and really, we look at it in two steps. There's sort of the product itself. You know, does the product solve a problem for the pilot? Is the product well-made? You know, is it reliable? Uh, it has to pass that test first. Otherwise, it's not even worth talking anymore. If it passes that test and the product itself is good, then it kind of gets to the dollars and cents of, well, what is it going to cost you to make this product? And what are you going to sell it for? And does the market want to buy that product at that price? Uh, and that's a whole separate conversation that sometimes dashes some hopes and dreams as well. But we like to try to divorce those two questions because they are different. And it doesn't matter how good the price is. If the product can't deliver, uh, it, it's not going to work. So, hmm. Tell me one that you've been surprised about. You thought, well, we might do okay on this. And it turns out to blow you away. Um, gosh, there's, there's so many that I'm embarrassed to admit. I, I will say... One of our oldest ones, honestly, is is the Bose headset. Uh, Hal Shevers, our founder, will admit to you that he said well over a decade ago, 
Nobody will ever pay a thousand dollars for a headset. That's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, we've been proven wrong time and time again on that one. There's a couple others that come to mind. One for me is the video cameras. You know, which is not a huge market, maybe, but is surprisingly strong. And I think you know, when the original GoPros came out, we all thought, well, that's kind of a toy and that's silly. And who would you know who would want to record their flight? I mean, that's yeah. ridiculous. It's yeah. just droning along. And so we. Uh, added a product, this is six years ago, seven years ago maybe, that was you know one of the first audio cables to connect an aviation headset to a video camera. And thought, well, we'll stick this online and, and see, but it seems kind of silly. And I remember looking at the sales about two weeks later and saying, wow, we were wrong on that one. And how can we order a lot more? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Those are good surprises. You have, you know, you have surprises both ways. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about another one. I, I'll, I'll embarrass you on the other end. Uh, you thought, man, this thing's going to be a barn burner, and it just totally flops. Any of those? Yeah, I'll go back in history a little bit um, to protect the the innocent. But uh, <laughs> we had a product that you may remember, Ian. We did an electronic checklist years and years ago. This mm. is going back twenty years ago, probably, and it was it was ahead of its time. It was uh, it was a way to have an electronic checklist to scroll through, and you could customize it. And each individual airplane had its own, you know, card with the checklist on it. And it was a great idea, and we loved it. And it just didn't go. Hmm. Um, and as I say, I, I choose to think maybe charitably it was ahead of its time because now <laughs> a lot of us use electronic checklists on our iPads. Mm -hmm. So what was the platform 20 years ago? What what was what was it on? It was custom. We made our own hardware. Oh my gosh! Uh, we, yeah, we had our own little. I mean, this was this was honestly even before you know Palm Pilots and stuff. So it was yeah, kind yeah. of like our, our own little Palm Pilot. Wow! Uh, that you slid a little card into for your Cessna 172 to roll through your checklist. So wow. well, it must have cost a fortune, I would think, back then. So I wonder if that was part of it. But it it cost us a fortune. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, one other exciting product though that uh, you mentioned this year, and I'm sure this would be on your list too, is the some of the stuff that's happening with, you know, the, the what I'll call non certified avionics. I mean mm -hmm. a great example, that Garmin G five the uh, attitude indicator and DGHSI. Yeah. Uh, I think that's really exciting. I think what you can do now in a retrofit panel for, you know, under $3,000 is is exciting and not just from a GWIS perspective, but I think from a safety perspective. I mean, Absolutely. I, I, I can't wait for the day that the vacuum pump is gone from most IFR cockpits. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think that product and, and other products like it from Dynan and, and companies like that, taking advantage of some of the FA's new flexibility, I really think that's a big deal and uh, is it something we'll be all enjoying for years to come, and, mm. and I'm glad it's here. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's like when you look at the fleet, um, there's a lot of platforms out there that just had sort of true IFR traveling airplanes. They just weren't there because they lacked certain safety equipment and other capabilities, but it's like man, the G5 and autopilots and that stuff's, uh, it's huge. It can totally transform the market, I think. Yeah, I think that's the future of a lot of great older airplanes that can now be affordably upgraded. You know, you can, people complain about the price of new airplanes and, and probably rightfully so, but there's a lot you can do with a 30-year-old uh, Skyhawk or Cherokee now with uh, some of these avionics to really make it a safe and capable airplane without spending twice the whole value on uh, avionics. So Yeah, yep. no, that's right. So tell me, you, you talked about some of the stuff that's come in to you guys, some of the stuff that you, you know, you seek out these, these problems and try to identify them. What, what's on your wish list? I mean, if, if, you know, there's gotta be conversations that you've had where it's like, man, I wish we had this, I wish we could develop this, or I, 
I wish this capability was there. What's What kind of stuff have you seen there? There's a lot of things there. I'll give you a couple examples. One that um, I, I'm not super hopeful on short term, but um, maybe there's a smart listener out there who's working on this. It has to do with engine data. You know, if, if you look at that, again, that Cherokee or Skyhawk that I was talking about, and, and you can upgrade it with avionics, it's easy to upgrade. You know, get rid of the attitude indicator and put in a nice digital display. You can put in a, a nice GTN 750. You can buy a Stratus. There's all these upgrades you can do. And yet, in a lot of cases, that airplane will still have a 40-year-old single Cessna, you know, oil pressure gauge. And that's that an attack is about the extent of the engine. Yeah. Whereas you get in a, new, a newer airplane, fully integrated glass cockpit, you've got multi-point cylinder head and EGT and... Um, you know, data logging and all the things you can do with engine data. And I know that doesn't sound exciting, but I think from an ownership perspective and to a certain extent a safety perspective, that really is important. You know, if we could find some way of liberating that engine data from uh, some of these older airplanes, I think that'd be a really exciting thing. Another one that comes to mind that we hear a lot from customers, I'll say, is connectivity in the airplane. So I want to be able to send a text message or even some people say make a phone call in flight. You know, it's the it's the last refuge from your notifications on your phone. Some people view that as a great thing. <laughs> some people some people view that as a absolutely terrible thing, um, which is probably its own conversation. But uh, needless to say, a lot of people are interested in that. And the issue there is there just isn't a great answer for light GA airplanes. You yeah. know, if you... It's still really yeah, expensive. It, it's expensive. It's it's heavy to install, big antennas. Um, there are some options out there for some lightweight stuff. You know, um, Garmin has an in-reach product that uses Iridium uh, to send messages, which which is under $500 and works pretty well. Um, we sell the AirTex product, which is a installed Iridium product for about $10,000. But really beyond that, you, you quickly get to, you know, $70,000, $100,000 and just not practical for anything. Uh, piston or even light turbine. So I think that's an area that's interesting. And, and certainly there's lots of money being spent there trying to develop connectivity options for pilots and passengers. I think we'll see something there eventually because just technology is marching on so quickly there. But uh, I don't know that there's an easy answer there long term if you want to do anything beyond texting. Hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you know, the idea of there's, I, I suppose in some cases there's safety advances that could come from being connected in flight. I mean, obviously with, you know, it's another weather option and nodems and everything else uh, for folks. But in a lot of ways, it's like it is the last place you can go and get away from being connected. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a gift in a lot of ways. So I think it's I think it's one of the best gifts of uh, <laughs> of aviation. I think that's why a lot of us fly. Right. The yeah. escape. You can't yeah. help but focus on it. But I think you make a good point there that. It's easy for us to imagine a connected cockpit as being just another place to be annoyed by, you know, text messages or, or Twitter or something. And I think that's probably not the real value of it. Uh, I hope it's not, put it that way. <laughs> um, you know, but if you think about the Internet and life before the Internet and life after the Internet, it does enable all kinds of services and tools that just weren't imaginable before that. So I have some hope that. Um, yeah, there'll be some growing pains, I'm sure, but I do think there will be value in eventually having airplanes connected, whether it's diagnostics or some of that engine data sharing I mentioned or flight tracking or talking with air traffic control uh, over something besides a VHF radio. I think there are legitimate, valuable uses there that can make flying safer, and it doesn't just have to be the, the gimmick stuff we do every day on our smartphones. Yeah. 
Yeah. So in addition to obviously running the retail portion there of Sporties and being out and flying and going to trade shows, you you sit in a position where you're you're an industry observer. You know, you're you're a member of the industry, you are a leader in a lot of ways. So totally unrelated question to Sporties. What do you think we need to do? I mean, aviation is, you know, we have these sort of built-in challenges like a lot of avocations. What what do we need to do to be able to 30, 40 years from now look back and say, okay, because we intervened, uh, the decline stopped, and we were able to grow and chart kind of a new path. I mean, um, where where are we falling down now? Gosh, there are, if you ask 100 pilots, you get 150 uh, opinions on this subject, right? I will tell you two things that come to mind for me whenever we talk about this. And one is, one, to be sensitive to costs, but not look for a miracle cure. I think a lot of folks have looked for this miracle cure of how can we instantly make flying more affordable. Um, and I'm, I'm just not sure it's there. What I do think we can do is make the airport and the flying community more welcoming and exciting and friendly and accessible. Hmm. Um, I, I think one of the perhaps the greatest advantage we have in the United States, at least, is the number of airports um, that there are a front door to so many communities. And some airports do a really good job of being that front door and that shining example for aviation, but others don't. And so I, I would love to see the local airport really be a place where everyone felt welcome in the community. Everyone felt like they could come get a slice of the aviation lifestyle, you know, dip their toe in the water, have it be the, the, the public square, not the uh, country club behind the gates. So I, I think that would, would that solve it overnight? No, but I think that would bring a lot more people who are maybe just considering it into the fold. Hmm. Now, that's something you guys do a lot at uh, in Batavia. I mean, you have your hot dog weekends, got a playground nearby. So uh, you guys have some firsthand experience. And does it does it seem to work? I mean, do people come back? Do you see the same faces? Do they come to the flight school, that sort of thing? It, it does. Yeah, I mean, we, we try to walk the walk there. Uh, certainly, we could do better in some ways. But I think it does work when people see the, the airport as a place where, you know, that contributes to the community and is is available and has some energy. You'd be surprised how many pilots will show up if you just uh, cook them a free hot dog, you know? And that has sort of an energy effect and a momentum effect that I think is valuable. Um, you know, Rusty Pilot Seminars, uh, Girls in Aviation Day, Youth Aviation Adventure, you know, there's all kinds of events and big and small, some of them expensive, but most of them not, that allow you to extend the hand to the community and, and let them know you're there and let them know you do good things. It's, it's I, th I think it's a, it's not the only thing you have to do to have a successful airport or flight school, but it's a big part of it, um, is not just sitting back and hoping people show up. You, you've got to be out there making yourself known in the community and having the atmosphere where people feel like they're allowed to come there. I think the other thing, though, that I see a little bit of, Ian, and I'd be interested to hear what you think on this. There's there's a little bit of a, a divide between people who fly recreationally, you know, for fun, $100 hamburger on a Saturday versus somebody who's flying for real transportation. You know, I, I've got to get point A to point B on Tuesday afternoon. And both of those are great. And I fortunately get to do both those types of flying and, and enjoy both. But I wonder if sometimes if the right approach for those two people is pretty different. And sometimes we lump aviation together as if everybody is interested in the romantic recreational side or if everybody is interested in traveling in their airplane. And I don't think that's the case. So uh, I wonder if sometimes we do ourselves a disservice by 
not tailoring our approach that each person comes to find with their own experience and expectations and goals. And we really need to tailor, you know, what we offer them, how we train them, what what airplanes we talk about, given where they want to go. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Do you uh, do you have do you own a boat by chance? I, I don't. I yeah. like to I like to think all of my extraneous money goes towards airplanes. So yeah. So we bought a uh, we bought a family boat a couple of years ago, and I call this the 152 of boats. So okay. it's like you say you bought a boat, and you know everyone thinks of a yacht, but this is not. <laughs> trust me, this is like a step up from a canoe. Um, but uh, <laughs> It's so, the parallels to me are unbelievable. It just, and it comes down to, it's funny because, you know, you forget a lot of times, you know, when you've been around aviation for 15, 20 years, you forget what it's like to be new. And so being new at this, it's like, I feel now the pain that some people feel when they're new to aviation. And, and a lot of it is that just kind of like what you're saying, it's that on one hand, it's set up for the professional set where it's like, if you're flying a cub on the weekends, you know, and you have to go to a signature or something like that, it completely detracts from the experience. But on the flip side, it's like if you're flying in a Gulfstream, you don't want to have to go to a rundown mom and pop shop somewhere in the middle of nowhere. So it's um, a lot of it, I think, is just breaking down. I don't even want to say barriers because we certainly have barriers, but it's like it, it just pain points. It's like breaking down pain points, essentially, making things more complicated than they have to be you know, airplanes that constantly break down during the flight training process, a lack of community when they first get started. So they have no idea what to do once they finish. Um, I think there's all sorts of things like that. It, Cause I agree when you, when you learn to fly as a career, the path is sort of charted for you. You know, there's, it's like, you might go to a mom and pop, you might go to an ab initio, it doesn't really matter, but you know, it's like your career focused, you know what your next step is, you know where you're going from here. But when you do it for fun, it's like you finish the certificate the next day, it's like, well, now what? And uh, and we don't necessarily make it easy for folks. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think there's there's also there's a lot to think about in the training process. Somebody who somebody who's training because they have a specific transportation goal. They own nine car dealerships in four states. And they want to learn to fly, buy an airplane, and start traveling. It's very different what they're interested in signing up for versus someone who's just always wanted to fly and wants to get that license and have fun with it. Both of them are great, but they really require a different approach. And mm -hmm. I don't know that we always do that uh, as well as an industry as we should. What do you think about demographics? I mean, they talk about this a lot with politics and, and how much the United States is changing demographically. I, I see that as a, I, I'm, I'm scared about that in aviation. It feels like we have a big demographic challenge. We do, I think. Um, in, you know, in some ways, I don't know that we as an industry have ever really gotten over the the great benefit, but also some of the, the drag of the World War II effect. You know, mm -hmm. it, it built so many of our airports. It built so many of our airplanes. It trained so many of the first generation of real general aviation pilots. And so a lot of our industry is still set up kind of with that in mind. And I think we're just starting to, to break loose to some of that. And, and again, some of that's been very helpful. I'm not yeah. knocking it all. But, yeah. um, you know, it, I don't know that we've shed all the pieces of that that we needed to. I think to a certain extent, though, learning to fly will always be something that skews a little bit older. I mean, the reality is learning to fly costs time and money. And the first one is probably as important as the second. Yeah. And the, just the reality is I don't know that a lot of 24-year-old people who are building careers or families or finishing school are, are ever going to be in a position where that's at the top of their list to do. So there's two parts to the demographic piece. One is, you know, boy, I wish more... 24-year-old people learn to fly. And I agree with that, but I'm a little skeptical that that will ever be 
a big part of our business. Now, the other demographic part is maybe what you're alluding to of just kind of general uh, American aging, kind of different generations, things like that. And, and that may be a trickier one to handle, but I think all we can do is plant the seed when they're young, um, you know, try to give them some way to stay connected, even if they're not able to, to chase their dream and get their license. Uh, and then, you know, welcome them when the time is right, be there so that whatever way they want to engage in aviation, uh, we're there for them. And, you know, one of the fun things to me about aviation is how it is cross-generational and it brings together people who would otherwise never be together. You know, you go to Oshkosh and you stand there uh, on the flight line and you'll have three people who probably don't share a whole lot of experiences otherwise in life. Somebody maybe lives in a big city, somebody lives in a farm. Uh, you know, somebody's young, somebody's old. Somebody flies a business jet, somebody flies a cub. And yet aviation is that connective piece for them. It brings them together and everybody suddenly is on an equal playing field, shares the same passion. You know, I think that's actually a great feature. I think that's that's something that we don't talk about and promote enough in aviation. Um, and that's something we have going for us is, you know, who's your typical pilot? Well, I'm not sure there is one. Uh, I, I, think, I think it attracts people from all walks of life. And so uh, I think that's a great strength we have. And to some extent, means that we have some enduring strength as an industry because we'll we'll always be you know we'll always be there for people that's that's my glass half half full for you Ian, so. <laughs> i love it i'll take it i'll take it well thank you again so much for uh for spending the time and um we'll look uh we'll look at you over christmas and hope folks do a lot of uh aviation christmas shopping and uh see what's coming out for the next year great thanks for having me Ian. All right, David. So, um, headsets. What do you, What do you think? Well, I'm really excited to hear about the trial that I can maybe do with Sporties and some headsets because there's so many good options out there now, and uh, state of the art technology, noise reduction, things that'll help us out, and also for an emergency, the Bluetooth. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome stuff. All right. So, hey, I think that's all the time we have for Hangar Talk this week, this year. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'd love having you. Tell your friends, you know, subscribe, the whole deal. You know it. Um, I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Look, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. You can also find us on the Sporties Takeoff app and on iTunes. Have a great new year. All right. We'll see you next year. See you next year, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.